On today's Louisiana Considered, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion is a multi-billion dollar coastal restoration project. It's part of the state's 50-year, $50 billion strategy to slow the loss of Louisiana's wetlands. For more on the project, our Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker will talk with Bren Haas, the Executive Director of the state's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Up first on today's cast, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, is the best-selling urban planning book of the last decade. Author Jeff Speck joins us now for a fascinating look at what planners in Louisiana could learn from other cities about improving road and pedestrian safety. Jeff, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Carl. What is, in your framework, a walkable city? As you, You've been pretty consistent on this over the last decade or so. Define walkable for us so that we know. Well, that I'm is. grateful you've been paying attention for the last decade. <laughs> I hope I've been <laughs> consistent. I've done a lot of walking. Um, I, I, I define a walkable city, and this is very much in the American context, I, I, I define a walkable city as a city in which um, uh, the, the car is an instrument of freedom, uh, an optional instrument of freedom, but not a necessary prosthetic device that you need to live your life. So um, uh, in walkable cities, a lot of people are going to own cars and drive cars, but they're not going to need to own cars. And um, typically, the the quality of life that one has uh, without a car is uh, commensurate to the quality that you would have with one or perhaps even better. Our, our beef as city planners isn't with cars. It's with allowing cars to dictate the design of your city. It just turns out that when you try to satisfy cars, you can give and give and give and they take and take and they're never satisfied because the more lanes you provide, the more people choose to drive and traffic remains constantly bad. The more elbow room you give to make a, to make a street safer, for example, the faster people drive and the more dangerous the street becomes. So we've learned that, you know, we, we you know, leaders in cities and people who are activists in cities need to get together and decide what kind of city they want to have and where the car will go and how fast and build that city. And believe it or not, um, those cities work just as well for driving, <laughs> if not better than those cities that are constantly kowtowing to the uh, you know, never-ending complaints about about congestion. And you, know, and you mentioned congestion. Uh, I spent a while in Orlando, and I got to tell you, it always felt like even in a state that works as hard as they do to keep up in Florida with highways. Downtown Orlando, it's actually relevant to Baton Rouge. Um, they've got a, a remarkably crazy street network that uh, uh, does something that a lot of cities have done, which is which you find in Baton Rouge is this concept of one-way multi-lane pairs. And so in our study area, which is the heart of Orlando, there's actually uh, three major streets and one of them is three lanes running north, and it feels like a highway. Mm -hmm. One of them is three lanes running south, and it feels like a highway. And one of them uh, is for buses only and doesn't get very much use <laughs> and is underutilized by the buses. And, um, you know, what did it used to be? It used to be three two-lane streets, and and traffic was calm and well-behaved. Um, you know, there wasn't that opportunity to jockey from lane to lane. What we've done in a bunch of cities, and others beyond me have done in about 85 cities, is convert these one-way networks like you find in Baton Rouge back to delicate two-lane, two-way streets, and it has a remarkable impact on the success of the downtown. It slows everything down just a little bit to more of a community feel. Yeah, but you know what also happens, which is remarkable, is you can start removing signals and putting in stop signs. 
which if you don't think about it much, you know, is that good? Is that bad? Well, when you put in an always stop sign in an intersection, the number of uh, severe pedestrian injury crashes at that intersection drops uh, by 68%, according to one very large study in Philadelphia, where they replaced 400 signals with stop signs. And so another thing we try to do when we work in downtowns is get rid of signals uh, and put stop signs in their place. And when you make the one-way, multi-lane, one-way networks back to two-way, that becomes possible. You also talk about uh, bike paths, and you've been pretty consistent about that and and using bikes and the the mobility of bikes in the cities. Uh, We've had some problems here in New Orleans recently, not... I don't know that there's a major resistance, but one community had a specific problem with the way the bike path worked. It cut the traffic, constricted traffic. And I think to your point of that's not a problem of bikes or cars, that's a problem of the community and the city not planning wisely enough to accommodate the traffic flow that was already there uh, by constricting it. it well, you know, I, I don't know the circumstance in um, in New Orleans. Right. I know a lot of communities put in bike lanes. I know some communities take out some of their bike lanes after <laughs> yeah, they put them in. Yeah. Uh, I had the pleasure of watching uh, the last season of Better Call Saul uh, and saw a bike lane, uh, very anachronistic, right? Because this was supposed to be like 20 years ago, but I saw a, a separated, you know, parking protected bike lane. <laughs> in Better Call Saul that I put in Albuquerque. <laughs> but then I heard I heard it was removed not long after they filmed, um, which is, uh, you know, you always get a lot of backlash. I think it's important to understand, and, and Jane Jacobs uh, um, discovered this when she was working in New York in the 60s. She famously wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities, the, you know, best planning book ever, um, even better than than mine. Um, and... Um, she she observed that when, for example, they closed the street through Washington Square Park, everyone predicted that the traffic would shift to parallel streets, and it really didn't. Um, you know, if you give these things enough time, and it really isn't very long, people tend to adjust their behavior to exactly the amount of traffic that they're willing to put up with. You know, because mm-hmm. because can, in congested networks, in congested street networks, um, congestion is an equilibrium, and it represents the fact that that you know. The congestion is the principal way that we're made to pay for our driving lives. Driving is what economists call a free good. You don't pay the full cost of it by a long shot, and therefore you do it as much as you can. If you own a car, the smart thing is to drive it as much as possible. Um, And so in that framework, then, the principal way that we suffer for driving is congestion, and it's the congestion that's determining whether we're driving on peak or not, whether we're carpooling or not, whether, whether we're making these choices. So what you find is... Generally, when a system grows, um, people will drive more. When a system shrinks, people will drive less. I don't. Uh, I suspect that this this bike lane perhaps was not tested for long enough, or there were some other factors involved. Or, you know, most of the time when I put bike lanes into streets, um, I find those streets that are not congested to put the bike lanes in. It's just a lot easier <laughs> right, to, right. to 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 put the bike network where it's going to create less political. Kerfluffle than than elsewhere. Um, most cities I work in are largely congested, but have a, a large number of streets that aren't congested, and that's often where you can make the most changes, uh, the most uh, you know, efficaciously. You have a very moderate view of Robert Moses, who is, depending on who you talk to, a, a swell guy with a lot of good ideas, or somebody who destroyed American cities. 
He's not directly responsible for the project here in New Orleans that placed I-10 over Claiborne Avenue uh, when the interstate system was kicking into gear. But certainly his influence uh, was felt as part of that, and he did contribute to some other kind of ideas about how to put interstates through major cities. So we are kind of grappling with the possibility of Claiborne Avenue coming down. Is that something that you're seeing in a trend? The highways to boulevards movement uh, is something that's been going on for decades now Mm -hmm. with a few really prominent examples. The West Side Highway in New York came down. The Embarcadero and the Central Freeways in San Francisco came down. Uh, The Changnye Chan Expressway in in Seoul, Korea came down. Uh, Every time that happened, there was, of course, predictions of Carmageddon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the term that is used, and that uh, there'd be actual, you know, incredible gridlock. In every case, the trips really just went away. The, the the traffic just went away because people adjusted their behavior to this new condition. And of course, the real estate surrounding those properties, surrounding the you know the the axis of the roadway, um, grew multiples in value, and people's quality of life grew uh, tremendously. I'm a big supporter. Uh, of of bringing these these down, particularly because so many of them, as was the case in New Orleans, um, uh, were initially laid through the hearts of African American communities without uh, without their consent. And um, I, I do think that um, you know the social social justice arguments for bringing those those roads down is is very powerful. It's really important though that you don't replace it with you know. I guess the biggest the best advice I can give is. Once you bring it down, don't allow the state DOT to build the replacement. Right. I've I've uh, witnessed in in Oklahoma City where the DOT was allowed to um, replace its highway with a quote unquote boulevard, and then more recently in Seattle where a, a wide coalition of, of people, um, you know, they put I think it's I five they put underneath mm-hmm. yep. Seattle there was that there was that big Bertha right the the huge right. tunnel that went underneath. Um, Seattle and and the the road that's replacing it is kind of just another highway. Right. So you have to be very careful who's in charge of the right. rebuild, right. Um, right? Because the the highway to Boulevard a solution only works if someone someone good is designing the boulevard. Tell us a little bit about the book now. So I wrote Walkable City. Uh, well, it came out in 2012, um, and it's done just great, and it, it got a much larger audience than I ever expected it would because, you know, it's a city planning book, but it was really written for everyone. And a lot of people have been using it to make change in their cities. In fact, most of the places I, I'm called to work, it's because someone started handing the book around. But it has been 10 years and so much has happened in the last 10 years, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, that that city planners could talk about, you know, from autonomous vehicles being considered seriously to, of course, Uber and Lyft are new and uh, the impacts of COVID and uh, Actually, the the I, I I've been consistent in my uh, support of bicycles, but the infrastructure around bicycles and what cities are willing to build has has evolved so quickly in amazing ways um, in that decade. So there's there's a ton to talk about, uh, uh, particularly a, a housing crisis that that we're trying to solve. Um, so uh, I've attempted with this new release to uh, to address those issues in in a hundred uh, additional pages. The the book is strangely thinner than it was before, but it, it is heavier and a hundred more pages. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today. Hey, uh, my pleasure, Carl. Thank you so much for, for being interested and, and uh, uh, you live in a wonderful place. Jeff Speck is the author of Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. For a quick snapshot of Jeff's arguments in favor of positive urban development, check out his TED Talk.
I'm Carl Lengel. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WRKF and WWNO. For 40 years, coastal researchers and advocates have called for the use of the muddy Mississippi River to combat land loss in South Louisiana. In December, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers signed off on major permits for a first-of-its-kind project that aims to do just that. Planned on Plaquemines Parish's West Bank, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion is a multi-billion dollar coastal restoration project that's part of the state's 50-year, $50 billion strategy to slow the loss of Louisiana's wetlands. For more on the project, our Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker spoke with Brett Haas, the Executive Director of the state's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Um, how about we start by going over the basics of how the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion will work and how much land it's expected to build? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion, the sort of concept behind that is to harness the, the natural power the Mississippi River that created all of southeast Louisiana, all of the land, the land literally that I'm, I'm standing on now, uh, anybody in New Orleans, the land that they're standing on anywhere in basically southeast Louisiana, south of I-10, um, was uh, built by sediment deposited by the Mississippi River. Uh, in the early uh, 1900s, mid-1900s, from uh, following the, the Great Flood of 1927, um, we uh, began restricting the Mississippi River within its existing course, its existing channel at that time, which is where it sits today, uh, and prevent the, prevented the, the flooding that would naturally occur each spring uh, when the river would overflow its banks, essentially, and um, deposit its sediments, its freshwater and nutrients along our coast that ended up, um, up again, building all of southeast Louisiana. So the idea, um, since that time, obviously, most folks hopefully are aware. If not, certainly Louisiana is in a land loss crisis, and a fundamental reason for that is because of how we've managed that Mississippi River. It's been a tremendous benefit from a navigation standpoint, transportation standpoint, flood control standpoint, but it also cut off the lifeblood um, um, that the river provided to our coastal wetlands to maintain those, to build those, and to keep those healthy. So the idea behind the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion Project is to try to mimic that process, reconnect the river with its floodplain, uh, get some of those good things that the river provides, again, sediment, nutrients, and fresh water, uh, back into those wetlands to help maintain them. Uh, we estimate that over about a 50-year period that uh, about 27 square miles can be built or maintained uh, just with this one project. Um, and importantly, uh, that may not sound like a, a ton of uh, land, right? A lot of our coastal wetlands, it's a massive area. 
But if you look at just the veritarian basin and the amount of land that's been lost in that basin over the last hundred years or so, and what we anticipate would, would be lost into the future, that represents about 20% of the land area that would still be in that basin kind of at the end of a, of a 50 year time frame. Um, we, um, um, anticipate that, um, you know, that land will start uh, to be built almost immediately. Uh, we hear sometimes that, well, we can't wait 50 years for land to be built. And certainly we agree with that. Um, but we do anticipate that land would start to be built uh, nearly immediately. Yeah, and you, can you just talk about how what makes this project different from most of the work that CPRA does to rebuild land on the coast? <clears throat> yeah, sure can. The, most of what we do and what we have done in our coastal program really for the last 30 years or so has, has revolved around sediment, right? There's a common denominator here. We're trying to move sediment and get that back into our coastal wetlands. Uh, our, our big problem in coastal Louisiana is a lack of new sediment being put into that system. And so there are really two ways to do that. One is to dredge it, essentially dig it up um, and place it where you want it to be placed within our coastal wetlands. And so for the last 30 years or so, that's essentially been the primary means of us restoring our coast. Um, and that is has had a tremendous benefit. It's been great for coastal Louisiana. It creates habitats. It creates landforms that are important for protecting our citizens from storm surges. When you think about barrier islands and ridges, um, and it's quick. <clears throat> we get benefits from those projects uh, nearly immediately. But the drawback from that is that it hasn't done anything to fundamentally change sort of the, the reasons that we lost that wetlands or lost those uh, marshes in the first place. So one of the beauties of, of a diversion project, again, is not only that it, create its, uh, it creates marsh, it creates its own land by delivering sediment in another means. It's a sort of a natural or harnessing nature to, to, um, to deliver that sediment, but it also uh, has the ability to maintain and nourish those projects that we're building through dredging. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the Mid-Barataria is expected to build up to 27 square miles of land, right? Um, and also, like you mentioned, help sustain those other coastal restoration projects that you all have planned in the Barataria Basin. But the new rush of Mississippi River water, we also know, is expected to take a toll on fisheries like shrimp and oysters, um, cause some harm to dolphins living in the area and increase flooding in some of the small communities outside the local levee system. Can you talk about how the state is looking to lessen the harm that the project will cause? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, um, so we've not shot away, first of all, I guess, from any of those potential impacts. Those are all disclosed in the environmental impact statement that was prepared and developed by the, um, by the Corps of Engineers uh, as part of this permitting process. And, and I'd like to point out at this point that, you know, if the project doesn't change things within the basin, there really isn't any point in doing it. I mean, the, the purpose of the project is to change the situation in the basin, which we know is a dying estuary, uh, is an estuary in which we're losing uh, our wetlands at a, an alarming rate. And so to continue to do the same thing that we've done over and over again, right, is the definition of insanity. This represents a, a change uh, in, in our approach and, a, and it will result in a change in the basin. That said, we certainly recognize that it will have uh, some impacts um, and, and some of those changes that will not be viewed as, as positive changes, right, within the basin. You mentioned some of the you know, elevated water levels on some of the communities that are already outside of flood control uh, systems, for example. Uh, those communities, quite frankly, today are experiencing um, you know, sunny day flooding or high tide flooding that is disrupting uh, activities in some of those communities now. Um, disruptions in, in some of the, the fisheries communities that as this basin has changed, um, uh, sort of the saltier assemblages, if you will, or those species that are, are um, uh, suited better for saltier conditions have moved up basin over the last hundred years or so. 
Um, and so what this project will do is sort of hit the, the reset button uh, on the condition of the estuary. Um, it's a it's a an area where that fresh water mixes with salt water, right? And it's so productive because it's got the sort of best of both worlds. You have the, the input of, from the freshwater side of things, nutrients and all of that. And then you've got also the, the benefit of, of the salt water and that mixing uh, occurring. But related to some of those specific impacts, we spent a lot of time uh, in those communities, fishing communities and, and locations um, and talking about marine mammals and such in figuring out ways that we can um, can mitigate for some of those impacts and lessen some of those impacts. And so part of this project implementation will be um, about 300 and almost $80 million worth of various mitigation measures uh, to address some of those concerns. Yeah. And you talked about these mitigation initiatives that you all are working on. Despite some of that work that you're doing, some fishers like those in the Louisiana Shrimp Association and the Louisiana Oyster Task Force have promised to sue the Army Corps over approving the permit. How is the state thinking about the threat of litigation? Yeah, well, we, we uh, certainly don't have our head in the sand. We recognize that that is a, a possible outcome. Um, I, I would back up a bit and just mention that as it relates to changes occurring in this basin, they're going to occur you know, with or without this project in place. And so they have been occurring over the last hundred years. We mentioned sort of um, you know, oysters and trout and, and shrimp and so forth kind of moving up basin as we've lost wetlands and things have become saltier further north within the basin. If we don't do a project like this, that's going to continue to happen. And as habitat has been lost uh, over that hundred years and continues to be lost, that is really the biggest threat to many of these resources. We've already seen uh, from a recreational fishing standpoint, at least, you're, you know, we're seeing uh, potential uh, decreases in, in creel size and, and, and um, uh, slot sizes for speckled trout that's being considered for redfish right now. You know, those things are not because of a freshwater diversion. That's because we're, uh, you know, the pressure is being put on those resources and, and certainly a loss of habitat. But as it relates to potential litigation, um, you know, we we 100% um, feel that we have um, uh, gone about this in the, in the proper way. That the Corps has has done their due diligence and has um, you know followed the processes prescribed by law, um, and are prepared to to you know to defend those decisions and, and defend the, the process that has gone you know been gone through to get to where we are today. Yeah, and barring any delay from lawsuits, actually constructing the project is expected to take about five years, right, from start to finish. What are the next steps before actually getting shovels in the ground? So um, we, we, we're talking about the permitting decision that was made by the Corps, which, again, is a, a huge milestone for us. There's uh, also uh, some funding decisions that will need to be made. So uh, the funds for this project will be made available through the Louisiana Trustee Implementation Group, which is the group that administers uh, some of the uh, BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill settlement funds uh, for the state of Louisiana. We're a part of that group. But... Um, but a decision will be made, uh, we think, at the end of this month, likely around the 23rd, 28th or so of this month, uh, as to whether or not the funding will be made available for, for the project. And so that's kind of the next step, uh, big, big step, if you will, in the process for getting the funding in place. Um, assuming that we're successful in that, in that happening, then, uh, yeah, we believe we can move to construction uh, in a matter of months and hopefully have construction well underway by you know, about the middle of the year or so. I've been speaking with Bryn Haas, the Executive Director of the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Thanks for joining me, Bryn. Thank you, Hallie. Always appreciate it. Coastal Desk reporter Hallie Parker with Brent Haas, Executive Director of the state's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority.
This is Louisiana Considered. That is today's cast. Thanks to our guests, Jeff Speck and Brent Haas, and to reporter Hallie Parker. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.